Testing, testing, one, two, three. Can you hear me? It's all good. I'm going to stand here instead of here because I'm blind in my left eye. So if I were to preach from here, I'm really just preaching to the side of the room. So if I go over here, I'm going to include more people in my message. Um, I am Jess Strong. I am the pastor at Nelson Covenant Church. Really exciting to be here with you today. I've had a tumultuous week and it was actually really refreshing to be able to come out here and be amongst uh, the Balfour Church family and it was um, just a little curveball that I needed to, uh, to move through what I've been moving through. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians and that's in the New Testament and once you move past Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and you're skimming, if you see the collection of Go Eat Popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's how I remember it. You can find Ephesians. We're going to be looking at the first three verses in Ephesians, but I'm going to start at the very, very end of the book of Ephesians. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to an early Christian community in the region of Ephesus. It's written... Hmm, one of Paul's last letters, actually, that he writes. And he writes it at the tail end of his life, maybe with five or seven more years to go. At the end of Ephesians, in verse 21, after writing this letter to this group of churches, he says, uh, Tychetus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am, how we're doing. And I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. And that really strange, seemingly obscure verse, if this came up on your personal devotional thing, you'd probably just kind of be like, oh, that's just the end of the letter, move on. This actually became a really powerful clarion call to our church because we have a missionary from the Nelson site, Colleen Nanachek, an Evangelical Covenant Church missionary down in Argentina. And when we were looking at this verse, what occurred to us is, wait a second, Paul is saying he's going to send someone so that the Ephesians can know how he's doing and they can be encouraged. But why send someone? Like he already, he's writing them a letter. Just add a few more pages to the letter and you've given the update. That's fine. And the point here is that the letters of encouragement and letters of updates to people are great, but they're far a secondary priority if you can get face-to-face -face with someone. Right? Face-to-face -face connection face-to-face -face encouragement, looking in someone's eyes and saying, I see you, this is what's going on in my life, this is what's going on in your life. We know that, right? Like an email is not the same as someone saying, come on over for dinner. And so what we've decided to do is to take a kick at the can at our site to send a team down to Argentina over the 2020 March break with the express purpose to simply go and encourage Colleen and the Covenant Churches there. And so I do want to formally invite anybody here who wants to go. That's not a Nelson site-specific thing only. It'd be awesome if there's one or two people. Uh, we'll help fundraise. Our church will help cover a third of the cost. We want to make sure that we can send a team, whether it's four people or six people or ten people, with the purpose to go down there and to say to Colleen and the Covenant Churches, here's the team that's coming. We love you. We want to encourage you. How can we be a blessing to you? And so if that is something that you're interested in, 
You can contact the leadership of this church, and they'll get you in touch with me. Or you can contact me directly, just jeff at nelsoncovenant.com. We'll be holding a meeting probably in the next seven days just to get a sense of who is at least somewhat seriously interested in making a go of this. And we'll go from there. So that's where I wanted to start and invite you to that. Okay. Do we have the PowerPoint up, Rick? Ready to go? Where am I looking? I don't even know. Where am I supposed to look? I don't see anything. Oh, because I'm controlling it. I see. I thought you were going to, like, give me the first slide. Okay, here we go. I was like, I'm really not seeing anything, Rick. Okay. I knew I wasn't that blind. I was like, okay. Supposed to be something there. Okay, got it. So, <laughs> thanks. So we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 3. And it's always interesting how letters start. Remember, all, all of these letters, or what we might call books of the Bible, are these um, uh, 66 books that are compiled together. I often talk at our church about how the Bible is God's library. And how books start are really interesting, right? Whether the book is Lord of the Rings or... Uh, Harry Potter book or some of the War and Peace, often the author has an intention out of the gate to get our attention to frame what's coming down the pipe in terms of content. And so when we're moving through some of these New Testament letters, sometimes the first few verses just feel like, uh, it's just kind of like housekeeping stuff, and then we get to the meat. But there's actually a lot here that has been a, a tremendous challenge and encouragement to me and I hope it will be for you guys as well. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Again, if we're not paying attention, if the coffee hasn't kicked in, we could maybe read through these verses and be like, yada, 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 okay, let's get to the good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff here. Three good things that I want to at least highlight this morning. Because in these few, very few verses, we are told who we are, where you are, and what you have. Who you are, where you are, and what you have. The first thing who you are. Who does Paul address the letter to? Saints. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And this is going to move into, uh, this is a theme where Paul wants to make sure that this early group of Christians understand their core identity. And he's going to spend the first three chapters of Ephesians really hammering on, this is who you are in Christ, this is what you have in Christ. And it's not until chapter 4 that he begins to get into what we might call practical theology. Therefore, how should you live? How does this work out in our work relationships, or our relationships with friends, or as a church, or between husband and wife? That's back-ended. What's foregrounded is our identity. And the Holy Spirit, through Paul, uses a word that is incredibly loaded and very, very significant to everybody sitting in this room, regardless of age, background. It's that in Christ, you are a saint. How do you think of yourself as a Christian? 
What word immediately comes to mind if you were to come up with one word that was to stand as a summation for who you are? I bet you very few people would emotionally move right to saint, right? We might more likely, if I was a betting person, more likely we'd move to sinner. Well, I'm a sinner. And there's reasons why we do that, right? We, we want to appear humble. We want to recognize that um, there's lots of imperfections that we have in our lives. There's inconsistencies where we haven't arrived yet. We're still growing. We're still, we're still maturing in Christ. But I want to challenge you this morning with the fact that throughout the New Testament, no one who has placed their faith in Christ is ever from henceforth referred to as a sinner. You can fact, that, you can fact check that if you want, and you probably should, because that's one of those statements where you're like, that sounds interesting, I wonder if that's true. Spoiler alert, it totally is. Michael Kruger, who's a New Testament scholar, Reformed scholar, guy knows his stuff, he says, throughout the letters of the New Testament, the people of God are referred to by a lot of terms. Elect, faithful brothers and sisters, the beloved, children of God, a holy nation, but most of all, they're called saints. And he said, conspicuously absent from the list of terms is sinners. And he writes, there's actually no place that I'm aware of where the church, the people of God, are called sinners. Moreover, an argument can be made that there's no instance in the New Testament where an individual believer or a church is referred to as a sinner. The closest is when Paul talks about himself as the chief or foremost sinner in 1 Timothy 1.15. But that context makes it clear that Paul is referring to his previous life before Christ. 28 times in the New Testament, the word sinner or sinners is used. Never once does it refer to someone who has come into a saving relationship with Jesus. Never again, after coming to faith in Christ, is a person referred to as a sinner. And that is because in the Bible, the term sinner has a slightly different, um, has a slightly different definition than what we would probably, how we would probably define it. Culturally for us, and certainly sometimes the way some churches talk about it, a sinner is someone who sometimes sins, right? But biblically, a sinner is someone whose core identity and core enslavement is defined by sin and sinful powers. So if I am in sin, and I am a participant in sin, and I am rejecting and ignoring God's will in my life, I am a sinner. But someone who has come to know Christ is no longer, in their fundamental identity, a sinner. They're actually now a saint. And it's a different thing being a sinner who sins than a saint who sins. Because a saint who sins is someone who in their very fundamental identity is ruled not, no longer by the power of sin and death, but by God's grace and love and truth. And so as a Christian, although it might sound strange, and I certainly wouldn't go around and saying to people, hey, do you know the Bible calls me a saint? I'm totally a saint. I'm not a sinner. 
because there's too much of a cultural gap there, right? And people are going to be like, whoa, this guy is way too big for his britches. But it's important for me to understand that how God sees me, how I'm to see myself, how I'm to look at my Christian brothers and sisters is saints who, in their pursuit of holiness, still struggle, still sin, but we are no longer actively seeking ways to live a self-centered life, to sideline God. And that's important because how you understand yourself will change how you live your life. You know, we had someone pray about, um, mention the prayers about doing sit-ups. Exercise, uh, the daily regimen of exercise, is a very different discipline. If what's going around in your head all the time, how you wake up and how you move through your day is, I'm out of shape, I'm not an athlete, I'm not coordinated, this is, I, I can't do this. I've always been out of shape or overweight. That's all. That's who I am. That script playing in your heart and then trying to just like, oh, go to the gym or go for a walk or eat healthier, that's harder to do than if the fundamental posture you wake up with is, I'm an athlete, I need to take care of myself. Part of my identity is caring for myself in such a way that I can love God and love other people well. Now, I still might make missteps in my day in terms of what I eat or whether I work out that day, but our fundamental self-understanding does bleed out in terms of our behavior. But often, what we can focus on as Christians is just the behavioral level. Oh, I'm doing these good things, good, do more of those. These things that aren't helpful or even harmful, I need to stop doing those. And that's important, there has to be a dialogue there, but it's you have to go one level deeper. And God is starting with the Ephesian church to go one level deeper. And say, before we get to behavior, which is chapters 4, 5, and 6, I want you to understand who you are. You are a saint. And that means that you are now in the momentum towards God's holiness. And now when you sin, you can look at it and say, wow, that is out of alignment with who I am. That's not who I am anymore. And I can confidently go to God and say, God, that, that sin doesn't define me anymore. I'm no longer a sinner. I'm not a person defined by my sin. I'm a person defined by Christ's righteousness. And that's different. It gives you a different confidence in prayer. It gives you a different confidence in going out into the world. It gives you a different sense of security within yourself. Biblically speaking, we are to understand in the self-talk that should be there, should be reinforcing this idea that you are a saint. And that's going to change how you interact with each other. Not turning a blind eye to each other's fault lines and maybe sinful practices or patterns in, in each other's lives or to call each other out. But can you see the difference where if you just move through your life being like, I'm a sinner, that's just... And when I sin, it's like, yep, classic, right? We, we, we kind of have a cultural touchstone to that where people are like, only human... Right? Which is kind of short form for like, well, what are you going to do? We're all just sinners. And again, there's a part of that which is commendable in the sense that we don't want to go across and project a holier-than-thou posture to other people. But Paul says, you're not to think of yourself as a sinner anymore. You're a saint. You're a community. You have a new identity. And now you have to learn how to live out of that identity. 
And that new identity creates an entirely new horizon of possibility in the world in front of you. And that, that brings us to our next point, that of where you are. Where does Paul say the Ephesians are? Just say it out loud. Where does he say they are? Yeah, right, trick question. Two places. In Ephesus and in Christ. To the saints in Ephesus and in Christ Jesus. Really, really important. He's saying, I want you to understand that as saints, as God's children, God's people, you now occupy two different spheres of reality. You have two homes, as it were. You're straddling, there's a kind of a Venn diagram, there's two areas that overlap in your life. You operate in two spheres. Physically, you're obviously on earth. You're in Ephesus. You're in Balfour. Here you are. But you are also spiritually seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And that means that that heavenly sphere gives you access to power that is not accessible to people who simply live their lives as sinners in Ephesus. See, as saints who are in Ephesus and in Christ Jesus, seated with God in the heavenly realms, there is this new possibility, there's a new authority, there's a new power at work in your life and through your life. So, if you think about the Oval Office, I mean, this is a really tricky theological concept. What does it mean for me to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms? That seems incredibly esoteric and not tangible. But if you think about it in terms of the Oval Office, whether or not the president is seated in the Oval Office, wherever the president goes, the authority and power of the Oval Office, in a sense, is carried with him, right? He's not not the president when he's not in the Oval Office. That is his throne, that is his seat of power and authority. But wherever he moves, he brings that authority with him. It's established in a sense there. And so that might be one way of helping us to understand that when we gather here on a Sunday morning, you are, we're gathering in Balfour, but we're also bringing this identity and power and authority to bear because we're not simply in Balfour. We're also in Christ. And that means there are resources available to us that are not available to those who are not in Christ. There's a letter. It comes from the 2nd century after Jesus is born, so somewhere between 100 and 200 years after Jesus dies, resurrects, ascends. It's anonymous. No one knows who wrote the letter. It's called the letter to Diognetus. And it gives a window into how the early church responded to this idea that, okay, we're in Balfour, but we're also in Christ, so how should we live given that we belong to Jesus, but he's placed us here? And this is where kind of this idea of Christians are in the world, but not of the world, comes from. We're in our own Ephesus, but we're also in Christ Jesus, and those two um, shape each other. Listen to what this writer describes, or how he describes the early Christians. He says, 
They live in their native countries. They live as Canadians. But they live as outsiders. So there's something that's a little bit different. Like they don't, they don't fully fit into the cultural milieu. He continues, he says, They participate in everything like citizens. They tolerate all things as foreigners. Every foreign place is their homeland. Every homeland is foreign. Like other people, they marry and have children, but they do not expose their young, right? Which is the practice of infanticide. You expose your young um, in the wilderness if you uh, can't or are unwilling to care for them. He says they don't do that. They provide a common meal, but they don't provide a common bed. So they're very generous with the resources, but they're very uh, restrictive when it comes to their sexual ethics. They happen to be in the flesh, but they don't live according to the flesh. So they're real people, but they don't just lean into the sinful desires of the human heart. They spend time on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. And they obey the fixed laws of the land, but their lifestyle rises above those laws. They love everyone, even though they're persecuted by everyone. They're misunderstood, and they're condemned. They're put to death, but they're also made alive. And they're poor, but they enrich many people. They lack all things, but yet they prosper in everything. They're dishonored and are glorified in their dishonors. They're slandered, but then they get acquitted. They're disparaged, but they seek to bless. They're insulted, and they offer respect. And when doing good, they are punished as evil. But when being punished, they rejoice as people being brought to life. They're attacked as foreigners by Jews and are persecuted by the Greeks. And those who hate them cannot even explain the reason for their hostility. See, because of our position, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, we're able to live a different kind of life here and now. Because we're not just in Balfour to live life on our own terms. We're in Balfour to live lives that reflect the fact that we are in Christ. And that's going to make us, um, hopefully with a lot of wisdom and care, think through how can we bring the goodness and glory and truth of Jesus to this community. Because we're not called to bring it to Calgary. We're not called to bring it to Vancouver. We're not called to bring it to Caslow. But this community is called to bring it to Balfour. So how do we get to know and understand our Balfour community and our neighbors and the culture here? And then how do we live as saints in Christ into that mission? So who are you? You are a saint. Your fundamental identity is a redeemed son and daughter of God. Where are you? You are in Christ and in Balfour. And lastly, what you have. In verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Paul says to the church in front of him, just like I would say to the church in front of me, God has not held back. He's not said, Hey, to this church, I've given some of these blessings down a little bit over here. Ooh, I kind of ran out for Balfour. Like, here's some crumbs. Like, love you guys, for sure. But like, I'm operating on like a limited resource budget here. No, Paul says, you have every spiritual blessing you need 
to grasp hold of your identity and allow that to transform your self-understanding, your understanding of God, your understanding of your vocation in the world as a Christian who's in Balfour and in Christ Jesus, God has equipped you with every blessing that you need. Every strengthening, every grace. God has made you rich. This is, talk, this is a, a refrain that comes up again and again in the New Testament where in Christ we're given the riches of God. That comes up in Ephesians 1.7, 2 verse 7, God's glory comes up in Ephesians 1.18 and then 3.16. We're the recipients of God's full mercy, Ephesians 2.4, and then later in Ephesians 3.8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Uh, one of Paul's major thematic beats in Ephesians is that God has been opulently generous towards you in terms of giving you the resources that you need to live in a way that honors Him and that fulfills His mission in the world and the particular part that you are called to play in that. That's really encouraging to me because God isn't like a dad who gives an assignment to a kid and says, here's what you need to do. So, see ya, I got I, I to bounce. I'm out of here. And the kid's left to flounder and be like, I don't, I don't know if I have the resources to do this job or to fulfill this task. God comes alongside us and says, this is who you are. This is your mission now. And these are the resources that I have for you. And you have everything you need. And I'm going to coach you through it. And there's going to be bumps along the way and you're going to make mistakes. And I'm totally okay with that. We're going to move forward. I have something very important I want to do through you as a community. And I have very, very important things that I want to do through each of you. And, but one of the things I want to get out of the way, God would say to us right away, is this idea that like, well... I, I don't think I have what it takes or this or I have all these uh, self... I, I'm going to self-select out of this, God, because I don't see from my perspective how I have the resources to be able to follow through on this thing you've put on my heart, um, this initiative that I've wanted to try, this phone call that I've wanted to make, this risk that I've wanted to take. And I think Ephesians 3 makes it really clear you are in Christ. You have every spiritual blessing that you need to move into the plans that God has for you. You are not going to get 50 per, 50% into following um, following Jesus and then sort of like the gas tank's going to go to empty. You got nothing. Now you're left stranded. God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And again, don't miss this. This is all front-ended Everything here, including the spiritual blessings, it's not, hey, it's possible to get these things. Just like, start going to church, reading your Bible, making good decisions, and then eventually, you'll get these spiritual... They're like a reward. That God's forgiven you. But like, there's like a lot of extra bonus stuff that you only get if you're like a super good Christian. This is all... This is who you are. You are a saint. This is where you are. And this is what you have. Not what you could have. This is what you have right now. So you're now operating out of a sense of security. I don't need to clamor for this stuff. I didn't need to earn God's forgiveness. I don't need to earn God's empowerment for the thing that lies ahead of me. If I continue to follow Jesus and be faithful and, and in pursue Jesus, then um, I can be confident that all that I need has already been supplied. I think that's really, really important. And maybe someone needs to hear that this morning. I, I jotted a little note down. 
um, before I got up to speak. You know, maybe you need to hear on a very, very personal level, in Christ you have everything you need to advance into what God is calling you to do. To be, to fulfill this mission impulse that's on your heart. Maybe you've just been kicking the can down the road and sidelining the idea because you're like, well, I don't see how it could work out. And you're trying to figure out steps 1 through 50. And let Ephesians 3 be an encouragement to you that you are in Christ. You are here. You're here for a purpose. God has supplied your need. And you have every spiritual blessing that you're going to need to bring honor to God and bring good to your neighbor. Right? All spiritual blessings. God doesn't have family favorites. So you don't look at Pastor Jason and think, well, he could do awesome stuff for God because he would have like all of God's spiritual blessings probably. But I'm just an accountant. And like, I love God, but like, I don't perceive myself as having all of God's spiritual blessing. But that's not what Paul says either. He doesn't say, you've experienced all these blessings. He's not talking about experience. He's just telling you a fact. You have them. So you can't let your own self-perception of like, well, I don't really sense anything. It's like, yeah, we're not talking about sense. We're talking about facts. You have every spiritual blessing. So move forward in obedience. Right? We don't wait until we can see evidence of the totality of what God's going to provide. We move forward and part of why we move forward trusting God is because we understand that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ already to fulfill what God has for us. And so like Ephesians 4.19 says, His promise is to supply all our needs according to Christ Jesus. And I think it's important that Paul says here spiritual blessings. He doesn't say material blessings, although that can sometimes um, come into our lives as a result of God's particular purposes. Sometimes people hear this and they're like, oh, well, if I have every spiritual blessing in Christ and Christ is in the heavenlies and the heavenlies are the full expanse of glory and goodness of God, wouldn't that have an implication for like material blessings too? But I don't experience material blessings. Or maybe certain physical blessings. Wouldn't I be healthier or happier all the time? Or if God's spiritual blessings were really coming into my life, wouldn't maybe I'm saying it imperfectly, but wouldn't my life just kind of keep getting better and better and better? And I understand how you can maybe think that from our cultural context, but Paul isn't saying that. He's saying, yeah, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 28, for example, God does say to the whole nation, listen, this is the way I've constructed the world. You live this way, you will prosper materially. You live this way, you will find yourself in a ditch and in a dead end really quick, and you will not prosper so there was material blessing connected to obedience. But here Paul is saying, Jesus has provided for you something more important than access to perfect physical health or more money than you never know what to do with. He's provided you access into a restored relationship with God. He's provided a way so that the Holy Spirit can dwell within you and among you as God's people and you can f move forward in his mission. Now from the outside looking in, from a cultural perspective, from someone who's not a Christian, they're going to say, oh, that's a bad trade. I'd rather have like perfect health and lots of money. But that's part of the evidence that we are actually born again by the Spirit of God. That very quickly we realize 
I would rather have Jesus and a full felt experiential sense of his power in my life using me than all, all the money in the world. And when you have that experience of Jesus, then when you go through hardship, when you lose your vision, when you get diagnosed with cancer, when you suffer a broken heart, when you move through long stretches of disappointment in your life, and you might, you don't abandon God because your relationship with God wasn't predicated on God making everything work out perfectly. What you do instead, and what I'm learning to do, is to say, God, this is a new opportunity through which to bring you glory and to serve other people. I'm scared. I don't know what this means. But I'm going to move forward because I trust that you have supplied everything I need to bring you glory and to advance good in this hardship, in this suffering. And there's a freedom there. Because that means the happiness and contentment and joy in my life doesn't have to be tethered to just all my circumstances lining up to be great. I mean, if you really think about it, what an enslaving way to live. I'm only going to be happy or find purpose if I'm perfectly healthy, all my relationships are working out psychologically, I just know what my purpose is, I have more money than I could ever need. I mean, who, who's that even an option for? And do you see what kind of enslavement it would be to wake up and to just constantly see everything from a level of lack and say, well, I don't have that much money, I don't have these perfect relationships, I don't have this perfect marriage, I don't have this or that, so I guess now I'm just like, I'm in a holding pattern, waiting for my life to start. And Paul says to the Ephesians, no, you start living for God right now. God's going to do power. You don't need to wait on the things that the other people in the world wait on because they think, oh, I'm dependent on having money or status or this job or being in this position relationally before I actually can start moving forward in my life. Paul says, don't you dare think like that. You're a saint in Christ Jesus and in Belfer. And God has given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. So now move forward in confidence. God has no black sheep in his family. And what you have in Christ is secure. He says it's in the heavenly places, which we might um, colloquially, colloquially think of as like, oh, heavenly places like far away. But that's not what Paul is trying to underscore here. The fact that it's in the heavenly place means what we have in Christ in terms of our identity and our mission and our assurance of not just salvation, but God's grace and power for our need and for his purpose in our lives, that that is completely secure. No one can undo that. No one can take that away. Right? This is why Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth because it's on earth where moths and vermin can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. It's kind of dumb to store up all these treasures on earth because they can be lost in a moment. So Jesus says the alternative is you store up treasures in heaven because no one can steal that inheritance. No one can get at it. And what Paul is trying to say here is that what you have in Christ is secure. It's so secure, you can't undo it. You can't sin, practice sin in such a way that you unadopt yourself from the family of God. There might be discipline, but it's always disciplined to bring you back to these core things. Remember, you're no longer a sinner, Jeff. You're a saint. And Jeff, I've placed you in Nelson, but remember you're also in Christ Jesus. So this, this pattern, this behavior, this needs 
to die. You need to let me do a work in you. You need healing here. And then you need to move forward knowing that I've supplied all your need for what I'm going to call you to do. So who you are, where you are, what you have. Do you live with that kind of clarity of identity, that kind of security of identity, that kind of clarity of purpose, that kind of hope? And I would argue, I don't think you can outside of Christ. Because all of this, in the whole book of Ephesians, I mean, go home and read it today. It'll take you like 17 minutes, maybe, to read Ephesians. The whole book is saying your entire life can be transformed and made new. But not from the foundation of, I'm deciding to make it different today. Or, that's a neat idea. I'm just going to kind of flip uh, the psychological script and try some new habits. It's I actually yield to Jesus and put myself in Christ. Allow Him to do a work in me. Who are you? God declares that you are fundamentally now a redeemed saint. Where are you? You are in Christ and in Balfour. You are established here and God is seeking to do something significant in each of you but also through you as a community. And what do you have? You have God's riches. There is no lack. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ necessary to live in a way that advances God's glory and your neighbor's good. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the book of Ephesians. Uh, teaching through it has been one of the most uh, powerful experiences of my life. And I pray that even through this message, it would pique an interest for people to go back into that book and, and, and again, just even just read through it and allow you, Holy Spirit, to bring certain things to the forefront. Um, thank you that in you, we have a new identity. We have a new purpose. We have new resources. And all of those are supplied, not because of the greatness of who we are, not because we've earned them, but because of your grace and love and and abundant care, God. Thank you that we are your children. And I pray for those who may be listening who um, have not yielded their lives to you, and I pray that you would just help them open their eyes to see the hope and the power and the transformative promise that's on offer in yielding to you. We give you the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.